you, Jason, for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning. So good to see you all here today on the Lord's Day. We are in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, continuing our journey through this epistle, and it's been encouragement to me as I trust it's been to you as well. Uh, So would you join us uh, by standing for the reading of God's Word, as we've been doing recently, and I think we've all been encouraged that it's... uh, It's helpful for our posture to reflect reverence for God's word. So join with me in Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Almighty Father, as we approach this word given to your church at Philippi, we know that your spirit breathed it out and preserved it to be your word to us as well. And we confess that we're so sin-sick and blinded by worldly cares that we cannot hear or believe, or obey this word without your Spirit's life-giving work in our hearts. Please illuminate this text to us and set us apart in your truth. Your word is truth, so that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our lives, our families, our church, city, country, and among all the nations. And we commit this time in your word to you, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is Grace and Grit. Grace and grit. You know, I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago and and heard the comment that one of the things that's lacking uh, among many who name the name of Christ is a certain grit. And so we're going to talk about how grit and work fit with grace. But before we dive into that, we find ourselves dealing with the aftermath of Christ's death, resurrection, and lordship in this passage here in, in chapter 12. We've just seen in what's called the Christ hymn, this this momentous statement that Paul makes, that that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, that he was raised, that he was seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords, so that every knee should bow to him, every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where Paul left us last week. And so he begins in verse 12, Therefore, and as a wise man once said, whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask ourselves what it's there for. And so we're living in this aftermath of the gospel, and and we see that not only is the gospel a matter of historic record, and we talked about that last week, that all of Christianity hinges on the fact that God literally took on human flesh, literally died taking God's wrath in the place of sinners, and literally rose and was seated in heaven as the authority over the universe. Not only is this a historic truth, but the gospel also has implications. And so I want to look at... The, the two things that the Apostle lays out for us here this morning, the imperative that he gives us in light of the Gospel, and the indicatives behind it. 
So the imperative of the gospel and the indicative of the gospel. And so first he says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12. That's the imperative. That is what everything hinges on here. That's how we should live in light of the gospel. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So before we continue there, pause, just consider the fact that Paul, the imprisoned, now imprisoned church planter of this church that he's writing to, he encourages them to obey not only when he's there, but also all the more when he's absent. This is important for us because the Christian life is to be one of integrity, right? Obeying when people aren't looking, right? If, if your mentor in the faith, maybe he's present in your life, maybe he's not. The person who's been a formative spiritual influence on you, maybe they're watching you, maybe your, your parents are involved in your life, or maybe they're not. We're to obey Christ, whether in their absence or presence as well. And he encourages them to obey. He says, as you've always obeyed. And we can get a little bit nervous as evangelical Christians when we hear the word obedience because we know that salvation doesn't come as a result of our own grit, our own moral determination. But for the apostle, obedience is not a dirty word. Obedience is not a bad word. And just saying that they should obey does not turn Paul into a legalist of some sort. He doesn't feel the need to qualify the statement whatsoever. Paul had just pulled from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, about every knee bowing to Christ. Bowing means obeying, we're reminded. You can't pledge allegiance without actually being willing to strap on some boot leather and obey the orders that you're given by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At my son's school, they do the Pledge of Allegiance, but they also do a, a pledge to the, the Christian flag. And, and the Christian flag, make of that what you will, historically. But the whole idea is not only are they pledging allegiance to their country, uh, but they are pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord all the time in the school. And I think it's an important reminder for us as well. If Jesus has been raised, and if every knee is going to bow, every tongue is pledging allegiance to him, then necessary to that is our obedience. But then there's something about verse two, verse 12, rather, that, that also makes us tend to sweat. Look at what he says. First, he says work. But he doesn't just say work. He says work out your own salvation. And he adds, work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So if we're reading our Bibles carefully, what... What, what do we make of this? Is Paul saying that, that the way to model Christ, the way to obey Christ, is, is this sort of self-righteous, works-based, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-moral-bootstraps, self-salvation project? Is that what he's getting at? Well, we'll see that the answer to that is no. And we need to look at the next verse for context. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We don't slice and dice the Bible like fortune cookies. Fortune cookie little statements and quotes, things that are easily tweetable or turned into internet memes. That's not how we read scripture. But we are reminded here that there is, there is some tension. We have to understand that there are ditches on both sides of the road. There are two extremes that we could fall into. Legalism and licentiousness. Legalism and licentiousness. So on the one side, there's this thought that, that our, our works, our moral determination, our effort can somehow earn us salvation 
can earn us the merit of God. On the other hand, there's the equally false idea that the way to engage God's law is to throw it away altogether. The way to live under grace is to be completely ungirded from God's moral law that's binding on all image bearers. And in fact, we tend to dichotomize this and we say, well, one is law and one is grace. But the problem is, is that Jesus says in John 14:15 that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So it's, it's not that one side is too much grace and the other side isn't enough. It's actually both of these are self-salvation projects. You either satisfy and save yourself by doing whatever you want or you somehow think you're going to appease God. But the problem is not that the, the wild, licentious form of so-called Christian living, it's not that it has too much grace, it's that it hasn't grace, grasped grace enough. So one side neglects true grace, the other side abuses it, but neither one of them has true grace. True grace comes hand in hand with grit. Faith bears fruit is another way that we could say that. An apple tree produces apples. That's what it does. Grace produces grit in the life of someone who's been bought by the blood of Christ. God doesn't save anyone. He doesn't forgive their sins, justify them, without also changing them and changing their trajectory. That's the promise of the new covenant that we're given in Scripture. Ezekiel 36:26 says that God will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31:33 says that God will create a new covenant and He'll write His laws on His people's hearts. And this is what Jesus is echoing when He says, "If you love Me, you will obey My commandments." The two things come hand in hand. So we don't want to fall into either one of these ditches here. The ditch of thinking that our works somehow earn our salvation, or the ditch of thinking that somehow to have salvation by grace means to not work. But we get confused here by this statement, work out your own salvation. We're thrown by that word salvation. Because we know scripturally that salvation is not earned, it's not worked for. It's important to note that in scripture, salvation is a tense topic. Uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, there's various senses, there's various tenses of salvation that we have to bear in mind. Salvation doesn't just refer to that initial moment of conversion, that come-to-Jesus moment, literally, where you encounter the saving work of Christ and you embrace it by faith. It's true that from that moment, your salvation is a certainty. It's guaranteed. It's something that you'll, you'll never lose. That's the grace of God in your life. But Scripture also refers to salvation in the the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. There's a sense in which we were saved the moment we trusted Christ. There's a sense in which we are now being saved as God is continually working in our lives. And there's a sense in which we will yet be saved when we stand before Christ and we, we experience the joy of that final acquittal and when we enter the new heavens and new earth. Salvation is a process past, present, and future. Scripture uses it in a number of different senses. But notice that Paul doesn't say, work for your salvation. But he says, work out your salvation. You can't work something out unless it's been worked in you. I often joke back and forth with my father. He, we, we argue about fitness and exercise. And he says, I'm just waiting for the exercise pill. 
he, he hasn't even taken that initial step yet initially of, of you know, just kind of going for a walk around the block or a little mild jog. You know, for him, it's all or nothing. And he says, well, I'm just waiting for the exercise pill. Well, he doesn't have the will to do it, and so he's not willing to exercise that because the desire is not in him, right? You can't, you can't just take a pill for exercise. You can't work something out that hasn't already been worked in you. If it's not in you, it's not going to be worked out of you either. But what does it mean to work out our own salvation? What does working out have to do with salvation? Aren't we saved from having to worry about works? Hebrews 12:14 is clear there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It is required that we be holy. Sanctification is a part of salvation. Not that our achievement in Christian growth somehow earns final salvation. That's not true, but sanctification is something that God grants as a part of salvation. And there are conditions in Scripture upon final salvation, as we see in Hebrews 12:14, There's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But it's important to note that just because there's a condition on something doesn't mean that it's something meritorious, something that we have to earn, something that we have to achieve in ourselves. Because God grants not only initial salvation, God grants everything after that point. Everything, including our grit, is of the grace of God. God grants salvation and he grants all of the conditions of salvation, including faith itself and repentance itself and new life. All of these things that are conditions of salvation, trusting in Christ. God grants those things in his grace. Of course, this only makes sense if we understand that God is sovereign enough to grant these things to us, right? God has a sovereign decree that includes every single thing whatsoever that comes to pass. See, this can be vexing for us, this idea of working out our salvation, that somehow being a Christian necessarily means bearing fruit. Abiding in Christ means we will bear fruit. Well, what does that mean? Is that if, if it's 50% my effort and 50% God's effort, then at the end of the day, it's up to me, right? Because God did the initial 50%, but I'm here now and it's up to me. Even if it's 90-10, even if only 10% of it is me, if I hold out on my 10%, then it's really up to me. And we can live in anxiety because of that if we don't understand that God is 100% sovereign. 100% of it is the grace of God. Because God in his sovereignty includes Everything in his decree, his will. And we'll dive into that a little bit more in a moment, but just notice that after he says, work out your own salvation, he says, work it out with fear and trembling. And this is in the context of knees bowing, tongues swearing allegiance to Christ. So he excludes any bravado, any pride or arrogance or self-sufficiency that would come from a Pharisaic self-made morality. So if you want to pat yourself on the back for working out your salvation, he excludes that possibility here. Instead, he's commending awe. He's telling us that we have to have fear and trembling, knowing that it's God working in us, and we'll see that in a moment. But it's fear and trembling, not because we have to earn salvation. We're not fearful and trembling because we know we're trying to achieve something that's difficult. 
We're not scared that we're going to lose our salvation. That's not why we're fearful and trembling. We're feel fearful and trembling, rather, because of the indicative. So the imperative is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what that means ethically will actually unpack in verses 14 through 18. But the indicative on which all of this is grounded, the truth, the vertical truth, is that God is the one working in us. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not only is grit in the Christian life not at odds with grace, but our grit is grace. It is a gift from God. God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's a gift of God. And this fits beautifully with the rest of what Paul has been telling us. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he knows that they're going to persevere in the Christian life and in obedience and all of the things that that entails because of the grace of God continuing in their lives. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, because, because Christ has taken hold of me, I'm going to take hold of him and everything that he wants for me in growing in holiness and in godliness. So grace and grit are not enemies for the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Classic passage that many of us probably know by heart. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even your faith in Christ is a gift from God, just as much as Christ himself is. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Fear and trembling, not boasting. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God grants us grace and salvation. He also grants us good works that come hand in hand with that. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our present, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that are zealous for good works. Grace trains us to renounce our old ways. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us out of lawlessness into zeal for good works. That's the biblical picture of grace. And it fits with God's sovereignty. God isn't just forgiving us. He's also working change in our hearts and our conduct because he's sovereign over everything. And the Apostle Paul says this as well in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who can give a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So God gets all the glory. Everything is from him, even my grit. Through him is everything, including my faith, my determination to follow him. And to him are all things. It's all back to him for his credit, for his honor, and for his fame. Paul says, it is God who works in you. And he's trying to stir us to a holy awe. 
Well, how can God work in me to will and work for his good pleasure? Doesn't that violate my free will? Psalm 33, verse 15, he fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ephesians 1.11, we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 9.18, he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. I'm glad God is not overly concerned with my free will because if it weren't for his gracious work in my heart, I'd never want to obey him. Frankly, I know that I'm enough of a sinner that I need his grace to change my heart every moment so that I can work out this salvation that he's already worked in me. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession in chapter 3, section 1, has a beautiful summary of this doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass, yet not, excuse me, yet so as thereby God neither becomes the author of sin nor has fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. So God's not the author of sin and we still have a will nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. There are still real causes in the world, but rather it is established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. There's still choices that we make. We still have real grit. We have to really work out our salvation. It's not an illusion, but God is sovereign over everything including the moment you were saved and including every moment of the Christian life after that where you're working out the implications of what he's done for you. His sovereignty includes our works. And there's a great analogy which uh, might go back to John Piper. I, honestly, I don't recall, but you know, imagine that there's somebody who's, who's knocking on death's door and a surgeon comes in and performs an emergency heart transplant. And that person who had no hope makes a miraculous recovery through this new heart that the surgeon has given them. And within a few years of recovery, that person goes and runs a marathon. Who gets the credit? Well, the runner, he trained, and that's great, but he couldn't have even trained and prepared himself were it not for who? The surgeon. God is the one that gives us the ability to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, an apple tree can't produce apples unless it's already an apple tree, right? Unless by nature it is an apple tree, it won't bear fruit. Now, if it is an apple tree, it will create apples, right? And so for us as Christians, we cannot live as Christians unless Christ has first come into us and saved us and transformed us. And because he's done that, we will bear fruit. That's his promise. That's what we know happens when he comes into a person's life and heart. And of all the good gifts that God gives us, Salvation being prime. God also gives to his people the gift of hard work. And it is a gift. It's character shaping. It's forming. It's something that we often lack 
failed to emphasize. And we see in our generation the consequences when hard work isn't a thing. And so next time you have a hard choice to follow Christ or follow your flesh, thank Him. Thank God that you obeyed. Don't pat yourself on the back. Thank God that you obeyed because He's the one that did it. He's the one working in you both to will and work for His good pleasure. So what is it that He's working in us? Right? What, what is it in salvation that He works in that we have to work out? Right? Christ has saved us. So what's it look like as we live it out? And we see this in the remaining verses, verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. So in verse 3, he had said, do nothing from selfish ambition. So now he's saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining about it on social media, whatever it is. Grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We are to hold the gospel high. Two hands firmly grasping it for everyone to see in the middle of this twisted, perverse crowd that we're in. And to do it with a smile, a kind of smile that will cast a glow on this gospel that we're heralding. Our good attitude And our conduct is a spotlight for the gospel. And Paul says if the Philippians live this way and work out their salvation like that, he can die happy. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Which makes sense, by the way, because in chapter 1, right, didn't he say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? He'd rather die. He'd rather be with Christ, he says, but for me to be here in the flesh is much more needful on your account. And so he knows that as long as Jesus has me here to keep living, I'm here to help other people, namely you, the church in Philippi, to grow in your faith. And so Paul will be perfectly happy to die if this is how they live out their faith. Paul's blood, sweat, and tears are the wine in which the meat of this sacrifice of the Philippians' faith is simmering and being roasted, right? His labors are the libation that's poured out on the living sacrifice of their faith. His grit is what seasons the grace, the aroma coming from their lives. You know, we have this tendency. We all are always riding pendulums from one extreme to the other. And one of those pendulum swing issues, one of those false dichotomies that we often draw as believers is that we split witness from lifestyle. We split witness from lifestyle. You know, there's some people who are all talk, always sharing the gospel, evangelizing everything that walks, and yet they live like hell. And there's people who say, uh, actually, I, I interviewed some potential missionaries recently who said, well, we, we you know, sharing... The gospel out loud isn't really our thing. We just want you know, our lifestyle to speak for us, which is maybe a valid thought, certainly not for a missionary living in an Islamic country. And there's some who, who use their lifestyle as an excuse to not use their words, right? So we separate witness from lifestyle. There is no 
separation between the two for the Apostle Paul. He ties them both together. together. There's, there's no difference at all. You know, just like when you're driving down the highway at night and you see the billboards and maybe you're driving right around at, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night and you see the flashlights, the, the, excuse me, the, uh, the floodlights switch on and illuminate that banner. That banner is there and people have to read it and it's there for everyone to see, but unless there's a light illuminating that, it's not going to be quite as effective, right? And our conduct illuminates the gospel. Our conduct adorns the gospel. It doesn't replace the gospel. And the gospel can't replace our our bad conduct if we're not living the way that we should as believers. But he says he wants them to be blameless and innocent without blemish and hold fast to the word of life. The gospel, the word, can't hold on to the word of life unless you're talking about it. It's a word. It's a thing that is shared verbally. And so witness and lifestyle can't be separated from each other. What's it mean when he says blameless, innocent, without blemish? Because we're all sinners, right? We're all totally depraved, radically depraved. We have sinful natures and sinful hearts. And we can actually take that doctrine, the reality that we are totally depraved, in our sinful nature and in our flesh. And we can allow that to be an excuse for the fact that in Christ we also have a new nature. So perfection is impossible this side of heaven. But you can live blamelessly in Christ. If you're working out your salvation, right? If, if you've embraced Christ as the only way to be saved, you can live purely and faithfully. You can have a clean conscience. You can lay your pillow on your, uh, your, your head on your pillow at night, having pleased the Lord as best you could. Don't let the fact that we know that we're so sinful, that there's sin in, in even the good things that we do, right? Don't, don't let that fact discourage you so much that you don't in, uh, pursue blameless, innocent, and living without blemish. Uh, Pastor Soper said something, actually it was Monday night, that uh, was encouraging to me. He said, you can always be faithful. You always have the choice to be faithful. No matter how bad your circumstances are. There's an individual that I know in town who confided in me a week or two ago that he's intimately known between 500 and 700 women. And he's in a Bible study at another church. He's surrounded by some Christian friends. He knows the truth. He's got some biblical knowledge. But he'll tell you right here, it hasn't made that, gap, that, that jump from his head down to his heart yet. He hasn't yet bowed the knee in repentance. He's not really willing to admit that he can't do it on his own. And, you know, for, for him, he's in this awful situation where he was with the mother of some of his children for several years. They never got married. He had multiple children with them. And then she leaves him, he leaves her, then he's with another woman that he's also not married to. So he has children by multiple women and and a common law marriage and then a divorce, but it's not really a divorce because they weren't really covenantally married. And Well, how how does he work that out with his family, right? Which woman should he be with? Who should he marry or should he marry any of them? And, you know, I don't have answers for all of that. It's pretty complex. It's pretty tied up and messy. But... He can be faithful. Were he to trust Christ, 
repent, bow the knee to Christ, embrace him as Savior, his circumstances might work out, might not work out, but there is a way to be faithful. Faithfulness is always on the table for all of us, no matter how impossible our situation is, no matter how severe the consequences of our disobedience up until maybe the moment you walked in these doors. Faithfulness is still an option if you are in Christ. And so Paul says, since if they live this way, he could die happy. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the Philippians should be happy. They should be joyful with Paul. Even if he's about to be poured out and die, but know that they lived faithfully. They should whistle while they work. We should whistle while we work. We should have grace and grit in our lives, and we should be joyful in it. We should glory in the fact that our grit is God's work in and through us. We should be a living sacrifice, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Because it's God, after all. The same God who fashions all the hearts of men. The same God who declares the end from the beginning. The same God that works all things according to the counsel of his will. The same God who hardens whomever he wills and have mercy on whomever he wills. It's this God Sovereign in granting us salvation and faith in Christ, who's also sovereign in our grit and working in us so that we can work it out. Grace and grit go hand in hand, and grit in following Christ is a grace that we need and we're called to take advantage of. And it's fitting today, as we come to the Lord's table, that we would partake of grace in that and remind ourselves of that good gift. And so let me pray and then Pastor Sober is going to lead us in a time of communion. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've saved us through Christ. Thank you that you are the one working in us both to will and work for your good pleasure. Lord, you give us new hearts. And so you call us to work that out, work out the consequences of what you've done in our lives. Help us not to forget the indicative, the truth that we're saved by Christ alone, and none of our efforts can add anything to that, but also give us the ability to recognize that you've called us to live a certain way as a result of that, blamelessly, purely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.